Hello and welcome to the Year Ahead Podcast, a special series where we explore the big themes powering the outlook for 2023. I'm your host, Fjordi Mula, and in today's episode, we'll be discussing how the global energy crisis is affecting the green transition. For months, sky-high natural gas and oil prices have been wreaking havoc around the world. Experts warn that there is no end in sight as long as the war in Ukraine goes on. The last time the world experienced a disastrous energy crunch was the 1970s. Then, the OPEC had imposed an embargo that sent shockwaves throughout the oil industry. That same crisis birthed the IEA, the International Energy Agency, and it pushed industrialized nations to develop strategic reserves in preparation for future supply disruptions. But many emerging market economies and debt-laden countries don't have the same cushion, neither then nor today. This leaves them especially exposed to any disturbances. Today, I'm joined by Alvaro Vivanco, head of ESG strategy, and Caroline Haas, head of climate and ESG capital markets. We will cover the biggest force driving countries, companies, and people to new extremes, energy. Welcome both. Thank you, Fiori. Hello, Fiori. Thank you very much. Thank you. So, Alvaro, let's start with you. Um, the repercussions of the global energy crunch, that's the biggest topic. Uh, what have been the consequences and what is the outlook for 2023? Thank you, everybody. Thanks for joining us in this podcast. Um, this is the time of the year when we as strategists really kind of take a pause and look at, at the year ahead, at the big themes that are coming over. And obviously, this year, we're taking um, energy very, very seriously. We're looking at it from many different angles, from growth to inflation to central bank reactions. And from just the energy perspective, right, we think that there are consequences in terms of geopolitics, uh, which we explore in a section in a podcast of, of the year ahead, in terms of uh, national reactions, as well as social and fiscal consequences. Uh, what I will say is that no matter what the outlook is, it's all very dependent for the next few months on weather. If the weather keeps cooperating, Europe especially seems to be okay. But if that's not the case, the outlook is, is very, very challenging, right? We have European gas prices, even though they have come down significantly from where they were uh, at their peaks just a few weeks ago, they're still about 30% higher in the US. Energy prices, uh, likewise, will be about 45, 50% higher than uh, last winter. Brand prices, Brian goes into the details in, in, in his podcast and his uh, section of the year ahead. But again, the outlook is that energy prices across the board will remain uh, elevated. So it just brings to the table to the forefront, the vulnerability of energy supplies. And I think what we're seeing is that each country is responding in its own way, right? What we've seen in places like Germany, Denmark, France, is that a lot of coal power plants are being bought, brought back. They are being extended in terms of uh, the closing expected dates that they had. There are emergency plans across countries in terms of potential blackouts. And in some of the developing countries that you were mentioning, we're starting to see fuel subsidies having a significant impact on, on social, uh, I'm sorry, on social protest and, and, and demands, as well as the fiscal cost. 
So, uh, you know, from, from the perspective of ESG, I think that this is a very good opportunity for all countries to really reassess kind of this balance between the commitments to reduction of, of emissions and the need to supply, uh, you know, well-diversified, steady, secure energy for, for their populations. And hopefully we can get into this, these themes uh, in this podcast. That's great, Alvaro. Thank you for that. And uh, since we are talking about the country level, Caroline, have there been any breakthroughs at the country or even company level that is worth highlighting? Perhaps any advancements that are worth noting? So thank you very much. And, you know, unfortunately, an energy crisis actually does spur on um, innovation or a change of policy or revisiting um, ideas that have been put on the shelves. And I think one of those examples right now is Germany, um, who obviously has been hit very directly with the energy crisis um, and obviously the uh, war in Ukraine. And you have to see how quickly they have been able to actually pivot um, to take sort of the, the impact of not having the obviously gas supply coming from Russia and really needing to look at new sources for the energy. Um, to contain and maintain the industrial production, as well as obviously mitigate any impact on their households given the rising energy uh, prices. Um, what is interesting is just to see how quickly they've actually been able to put on stream LNG terminals um, in the shortest period of time. Secondly, you know, very much in contrast to the nuclear policy that they had, they have decided at least for the short term to keep continuing with the uh, nuclear plants that they have that are in operation so that they can mitigate some of those shortfalls. And then they've obviously put in over about a 2 billion, 200 billion euro um, price, energy price cap, both for households as well as industries to really help them you know, kind of circumvent or to at least uh, weather the storm over the winter months um, until some of this new energy is coming on stream. And what they've done is they've given certain minimum caps, um, both for households as for industrial companies, where they will then pay the difference. It also encourages actually both households and companies to look at other uh, potentially more um, cost-effective alternatives by only using an 80% um, threshold that they're willing to supplement and really encouraging those takers of this energy to find new sources of which, and I think it's really important to note, renewable energy has now crossed over that threshold where it is actually highly competitive versus sort of the conventional energy sources. So, you know, it, that will very much accelerate that shift and encourage, you know, renewables, um, the demand for renewables to really increase um, over the coming months and years as we go ahead. Excellent. That's, that's an excellent overview. And um, our next question is very related to that. We just returned from COP27. Um, how were some of these themes evidence? So, you know, it was interesting. Um, I think in each year, COP is obviously one of those that is closely watched and sometimes criticized for what the outputs or outcomes are. Obviously, we're still in the second week. 
But I think what was really sort of the trajectory of this is that this is a global phenomenon and we really need to address the global issues. And so it is one from where the emissions are being generated, but also where the greatest sort of physical um, impact is from the climate uh, change crisis. And this is sort of where, how can you actually accelerate more renewables, particularly in the developing world? And, you know, it is interesting to note that it will almost be an investment about of a trillion a year globally just to help the emerging markets. And that's a third of the total yearly expectation of infrastructure that needs to be put in. Um, and, and I think here comes kind of the crux of the problem is that the developing world or the emerging markets don't really have the financial capacity to actually finance this trillion a year that is required. And so what was very much noticed in, noticeable in COP was one, the kind of discussion around loss and damage. Um, secondly, around blended finance, which was something else that was called out also by the NGFS, as well as the US very much focusing on carbon markets and how carbon credits can actually be used to help finance some of that transition. And when you look at all three of those different initiatives, they're very much focused on how do you actually encourage more capital to flow into the emerging markets to help with those developments. And that's where obviously all these different companies, private as well as private finance, will also be encouraged to support as we move forward. Um, and I think that comes to the point where we say the risk appetite that we all have is going to have to be reevaluated. So that actually one isn't perhaps as reticent to supporting in these certain jurisdictions, but actually kind of working together to find plausible solutions to do that. And one of the things that was called out was obviously the role of the multiple development banks. And interestingly, in one of the reports that Lord Stern um, and his co-chair worked with um, on the back of the two COP presidents, 26 and 27, was to see where would that financing come from? And the expectation is that the MDBs um, yearly or well, total financing is going to triple um, by 2025 from about 60 billion to 180 billion. Now, what is important is to see that this will need to be stratified to actually match those different risk return profiles so that we actually mobilize more private capital into that. And it comes back to my point about the risk appetite and assessing that where is actually that pain threshold between the returns and the risks that is associated. Thank you, Caroline. There is a new innovation of financial instruments, but most importantly, it sounds like there's new thinking uh, towards addressing the effective um, climate adaptation and mitigation uh, challenges. Can you explain a bit more on how will these new technologies develop over the foreseeable future pending um, accelerated um, uh, financial flows? So, I, you know, I have to say that was one of the exciting things as well as just seeing all the innovation hubs um, are all the technologies in the innovation hub being presented. And, you know, you were asking earlier about the companies that are doing interesting things. It's, I think, almost the technology itself. There's a lot of different companies doing interesting, but it's, you know, looking at things like green steel and obviously a, a big discussion around green hydrogen 
and making that scalable over time. Now, some of this is still in its workout and is it actually coming on stream now? Similarly, I would call out carbon capture and storage which in many ways, as someone recently said to me, was almost sci-fi, the fact that you could be pulling CO2 out of the air um, to reduce the uh, respective emissions that we're facing. And that is actually so much activity is happening, both with small companies, and that's why you're seeing this increased um, investment in clean tech funds, um, like Brookfield, which was most recently announced, but also what the universities are doing and how they're using their sort of R&D budgets to really drive some of this transition. Excellent, thank you, Caroline. On the topic of um, innovation um, in clean energy towards decarbonization, in your piece, Alvaro, you write about the role of nuclear energy for the current discussion. Can you expand a little bit on that? Yeah, I mean, we think that this is a good opportunity to put all the alternatives on, on the table. And when you look at really the most efficient and secure and clean source of energy, definitely nuclear needs to be part of that discussion. And our point really is that, uh, you know, this is a great opportunity to start that debate. Obviously, investment takes time, putting the plants together takes takes a lot of, of commitments from, from politicians, from, from investors. But I guess there were two main points uh, of, of our section. The first one is that just how clean nuclear uh, production is. So we have a chart on, on the piece that, that just shows the, the, the mass differences, not, not only compared to coal and oil, but even you know, solar and wind, right? It's very marginal emissions coming from those, but even, even the, uh, compared to those, uh, nuclear comes, comes ahead. Uh, so you know, a lot of technological advancements have also been made over the last few years. We're talking about much smaller, flexible, cheaper ways to, to explore uh, nuclear energy and to deploy it. And then the second point is that even with this, um, you know, progress, nuclear still makes a very small percentage. It's about 4% of total global consumption. It really picked up in the 60s and 70s, but then it stalled after uh, Fukushima, and it's actually lower than uh, it is that it was in 2006, right? So, you know, when we look at the composition of oil, of, of energy globally, is still mostly oil, coal, and natural gas. There are different studies out there that try to find the optimal share of nuclear. It's probably somewhere between 30 and 40%. Mm -hmm. The point is, you know, there's a huge gap you know, even if we're, let's say, 5% versus 30%, there's a lot of room uh, for, for nuclear to catch up, to have a more, you know, prevalent, I will say, a more relevant um, and appropriate role in, in the energy mix. And I think, you know, some of the themes that Caroline has been mentioning, this is a crisis. You know, I think Churchill was that, that said, never let a crisis go to waste. This is an opportunity to really, um, you know, start the debate. Excellent. Yeah, another excellent source of um, innovation in the space. It's clean, uh, it's smaller, it's cheaper. Um, what about the safety concerns? Is that is that a big challenge? Yeah, I mean, all sources of energy, there are benefits and, and there are costs. Um, I think that it's also important to see that other renewables like wind and solar 
are, are obviously very important in the transition. They have picked up significantly from you know, very minimal levels a couple of decades ago to now making about seven to ten percent of, of the of the global mix. But you know, it takes energy to produce solar panels. Uh, there's concerns about labor standards, there's other considerations in every kind of, of, of energy production. I think what's important is that nuclear energy has been around for, for a while. Um, you know, spent fuel, which is the main um, source of waste uh, from nuclear production, has been safely stored in many sites globally. And when you look at actual physical safety, uh, we also have a very interesting chart in the piece which shows that, you know, the, the, the fatality rate coming from energy, uh, when nuclear energy is a fraction of what it is from, from, from other sources, from coal, from oil, from gas, you know, it really is minuscule. So, you know, there's obviously been um, high headline driven uh, events, Fukushima being the most recent one. This has really shifted perceptions uh, around, you know, this, the safety of this. But when you look at, you know, the trajectory, the history uh, over the last few decades, um, you know, I think that there are reasonable safety um, risks that, that could be taken into account, especially as the technology gets better and better with time. Okay, that's that's helpful to know. So there's definitely progress to be made, but they're arguably safer from a lot of other alternatives. Um, can you explain what this could imply for the future of other renewables over the long term if nuclear becomes uh, a bigger part of the conversation? Yeah, I mean, I think that the interesting thing right now is that you know if nuclear was a bigger part of the energy mix in one particular country it will obviously ease some of the constraints globally right so we're in, in this problem together we need to you know hopefully attack it from a multilateral perspective what's been interesting is that just over the last few months countries are moving a little bit more aggressively into the direction of, of nuclear japan has restored is nuclear reactors, you know, Poland, for instance, has increased uh, nuclear capabilities, has re-engaged with other countries in, in terms of establishment agreements. In the US, you know, the re recent uh, legislation starts to give credits to these more advanced developed nuclear reactors. There's more funds for research and development, right? So it seems to me that, you know, the momentum is moving in, in the right way. There's also a, a few, uh, you know, besides the, the safety considerations that we mentioned a minute ago, you know, it, there, there are other things, right, that will take a little bit of time, uh, a little bit more of capabilities, even in terms of, you know, human capacity. We need a lot more engineers that are, you know, able to safely operate this, these reactors. The, the supply chains needs to be more integrated. Things to need to be uh, moving along more, more smoothly. But I think at the end of the day, what needs to reset, right? Going back to your question about safety is that when you ask people's perception about nuclear, there's a lot of misperceptions, right? For instance, in a survey in the US, a lot of people, more than 50% said that nuclear energy contributed to, to climate change, right? You know, it's exactly the opposite. And I think that, you know, because of, of the history, right? Because of some of these incidents, the perception in everybody's mind is that this is something to be avoided, that this is something dangerous. I think that that's where we can also start making 
uh, a difference, right? In terms of, you know, putting on the table, obviously the risk, but also the benefits from nuclear and getting politicians more engaged to more actively, you know, again, it's not that all of a sudden we should all be moving just to nuclear, but that nuclear, you know, becomes a bigger part of, of the mix. And I think that, you know, what we're hearing from different countries is, is very encouraging, is very exciting. Obviously these things take time, the best time to start making these investments was, you know, five years ago, but since we didn't, this is the, the, the next best time. Uh, so, you know, again, let's not let this crisis go to a waste. Let's engage in, in a more kind of, I think, open and honest conversation about what it actually means in terms of securing a diversified source of energy that is sustainable, that is clean, and it can be here for the future. Here for the future, should have acted yesterday, but never too late. Uh, we have to respond accordingly to the energy crisis. And this is what this is, Caroline. It's a crisis about security, but also consistently. Um, how do you envision this energy crisis affecting the green energy transition to bring it back up to the um, 30,000 foot view? How do you see it develop in the coming months? Could decarbonization plans be left to the side as, uh, as a result? What are your thoughts? Oh, thank you. Um, I think it almost comes back to Alvaro's point where he says, you know, don't waste a good crisis. Um, I actually think there's uh, this has actually been accelerated. And uh, given the energy crisis, it's just really sharpened people's views. And it isn't just the energy price crisis that is driving this, but also the energy security. And at the end of the day, when you look at renewables, they are at source. And so as a result, you actually start to secure your own energy sources. And that is a, a tremendous um, benefit that sometimes, you know, when we consider where previously our energy was coming from and the, you know, the thousands of kilometers that traveled, that changes the dynamics considerably. Now, I think on the renewables, and I think I, I see this as a huge benefit as well, is Anyone who's in the renewable space will also realize that sometimes it will take somewhere between seven to nine years to actually bring an offshore wind farm um, into production. And obviously there is the development and the build of that um, offshore or onshore wind farm, but some of that is actually getting, and gr getting the grants or the permits associated with the location. Now, partially because of COP and I think a lot of the discussions that we were in and I've been in, but this is a long-term problem that has been raised continuously by renewable energy providers is that it isn't a question of their capacity to build. It's a question of getting through some of the red tape and the bureaucracy. So it was really welcoming to see that the EU this week announced that they were going to help cut through the red tape and actually reduce the time that it takes to actually get that permit in place so that the build can happen. And obviously we are benefiting from that um, energy much more quickly. And those I think are just signs that this isn't actually slowing down. If anything, hopefully it will accelerate. Um, now, we, you know, and very much also why Alvaro was focusing on nuclear, there is going to be a mix of solutions. There is not just one solution that we are going to be working towards. And I think to some extent, and I was in a bunch of meetings this afternoon too with investors, a little bit of pragmatism has to come in, that it is going to be a mix. It doesn't mean 
that one isn't working towards the 2050 targets. It isn't, does not mean that we're not going to work towards green products, but we do need to see that transition. And decarbonization is not going to go from zero to 180 overnight. So we need a little bit of time to shift through some of these technologies and be very conscious that with each step, the actual percentage of GHG is going to be coming down. And that actually already benefits the long-term objectives of what we're trying to achieve. And you know, when I look at sustainable fuels, we will be going through an evolution. It won't be 100% green hydrogen. It will be using a percentage of green hydrogen in the fuel source, meaning that it's not 100% sustain. Uh, it is not 100% conventional, but potentially 80%. And then in the future, it'll be 50%. And then you start to shift into something like biofuels, so that you know we have that evolution, and that should be very, very you know considered. And we also have a certain role to very much build that out and raise the awareness and also provide the education around those new technologies to really show and evidence why this is still decarbonizing. It's just not going from uh, zero to 100 or from 180 to zero overnight. Someone said you do have to pass through 50. And I think this was a very, you know, sort of has always stayed in my mind. Um, and and I think that's why, to some extent, the reporting and the metrics and all of this will be important so that we can actually evidence the change. Um, and that's where obviously all of those sort of regulations that are coming on stream, I would say globally, will help. And it will also help with the reporting so that we actually have a little bit more transparency and uh, comparability between different companies, different countries, and different financial institutions as we support those transitions as well. Thanks for everyone for listening and thanks to our guests for joining. Alvaro, Caroline, thank you very much. Be sure to follow us on social media to get other episodes in this series the moment they're published. If you like what you heard today, hit the like button so that it's easier for others to find. Bye for now.